We're looking at Psalm 126 this morning. And uh, this morning, what I want us to answer is this important question. What should we do when we need God to revive us? Uh, I'm not talking about really fundamentally us as individuals, but I'm talking specifically us as a local church. What should we do when we need God to renew, restore us, revive us as a local fellowship? Now, this probably sounds like a strange question to some of you. Uh, you are thinking to yourself, all right, Chola, slow down a little bit, right? You are jumping the gun here. Who says we, as a local church, need God to revive us? Uh, are we not okay? Do we need revival? Well, the answer to that question is that God told us two weeks ago that we need to be revived. Now, I know we focused uh, on individuals, uh, specifically in the application of this psalm. But God told us that when we looked at this Psalm 126. We, that's when we started exploring this psalm. We had looked at the first four verses of this psalm. And you remember, if you remember, right, that we said in verse 1 to 3, Israel is remembering what it was like when they returned from their long <clears throat> exile in Babylon. So verse 1 to 3 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. But then when we looked at those memories, we read on to verse 4, didn't we? Uh, we, 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 we saw that in verse 4, they are now praying for a fresh revival. So verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, in the present tense, like streams in the Negev. And when we looked at that verse, we, we said that that verse is teaching us uh, a key truth, which is all people of God need ongoing restoration by God. And as I said, strictly speaking, the prayer for this new revival in verse 4 is for the people of God as a whole rather than the individual actually singing the song. So there are applications to individuals, and we did that. But strictly speaking, verse 4, if we're understanding it in context, it's about the revival of the people as a whole. But of course, um, and particularly, just look at verse 4. The prayer does not say, restore my fortunes. It says, restore our fortunes. It is a community-centered prayer, not a self-centered prayer. But of course, as God revives his community, the individual members of his community also experience revival simultaneously in their personal and home life and work life, right? As the divine waters of revival are poured on the sea of God's church, it lifts up all boats, doesn't it? The individual boats that are there. Now, as a church, we are, of course, part of this new community of God through the new covenant that the Lord Jesus Christ has established. Jesus is the true king of Zion. We are the true church of God, the true people of God, as a local church, because we belong, of course, to the true church of God in Jesus Christ. God has established, if you like, God has restored, I should say, every person here who is truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
from our spiritual exile of sin and rebellion against God into a new life with him in Jesus Christ. And yet, like the Old Testament church Israel, all members of the New Testament church, including us, need ongoing revival by God. There is the revival is not just for other churches out there. It's not just for the church in the UK as a whole, or, indeed, or indeed the church global. We, as a local fellowship here, us gathered here, the regenerate members of God's family, we need ongoing revival as a local family here in Bexley Hill. And that nicely leads us to the first answer to the question we are asking Today, the question just to remind you, we're asking is, what should we do when, God, when we need God to revive our local church, this church? Well, the first, there are two answers. The first answer, strangely enough, is that we must long for it. We must long for it. If we want God to revive us, there must be a deep longing in us as a church to be revived by him. That's the first point. Now, around 20 years ago, I traveled to Zambia uh, after a self-imposed exile in the UK, right? I had reached that age, of course, where I was longing for the motherland, right? As I said. So time to pay Zambia a visit. And I'd booked for five to six weeks, I think. That's it's going to be a long stretch. I need to travel. I haven't been there for a while, so let me travel for a good chunk of time. And after the first few weeks, first week or two back in Zambia, life was wonderful. I have to say, I enjoyed carrying in my pocket the purchasing power of the British pound. Uh, it made all the difference. I just loved it. And of course, I loved going to see to the places where I grew up in Mufrila, the school I attended, I gave it a visit. I even went to my village back in North, in Wapra province there. I spent time there, with the old house where we used to live. Oh, it looked great. I was really enjoying it. And of course, especially I was enjoying spending time with my mother because my father uh, had passed away and it was, great. it was the first time I was returning after my father had passed away. And it was great to uh, just be with my mother, spend time with her, and of course catch up with long-lost friends and family members. So that was week one, week two. But in the third week, the water cut out. I mean, literally, the, the water went out in the whole neighborhood. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. It doesn't happen in London. Uh, and then there was a power cut. <laughs> All right, we are plunging darkness now. And then it just lasted like that. And then, of course, that was week three. By week four, my money was also cutting out. Because that sort of become a temporary working bank for long-lost relatives. Right? And, of course, I'd become a hero to the homeless kids in the town center. This was all fresh to me. Homeless kids, I mean, we need to support them. So I was just dishing out cash here and there, thinking I could solve their economic problem while I was on holiday. But my money was running out. And then reality started setting, isn't it? On week four. I love my mother. And I love Zambia. But in the future, my holiday has to be a bit shorter. Right? 
And so I said, I think it's time for me just to check. That flight is, is really booked and the British Airways is flying out. You see, what had began as an exciting return from exile, after a few weeks, was met with the fresh reality of the challenges, of the poverty, of the difficult life there, right? Of the harsh life in the global south. I, in fact, started missing my flat in London. I hadn't got married by then. I thought, oh, you know, I can watch TV all day. I can't even watch TV yet. No CNN. What's going on? So I started missing that. Reality set in. And as I thought about my experience, and I look at this passage here in Psalm 126, my experience is, I think, a bit similar to what Israel was feeling when they came back from their exile. Except their situation was a thousand times worse than that. When they initially came from exile in Babylon, it was like a dream come true. They could not believe they had gotten their freedom back by the, that God had kept his promises after 70 years. And for a while, they were walking on water, we might say. But then after that initial excitement of a return from exile, they got down to the business of actually doing the living in the nation. You see, they had come back to a war-torn country. It had been ransacked by the Babylonians and other powers. It needed to be rebuilt from the scratch. So they started chilling on the land, working as farmers. And they were doing that in a very hostile climate. And without really national leadership. Because you see, although God had raised some leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah and others... There was really no national infrastructure of leadership in place. The towns and villages, most of them were deserted. And we know just from reading the book of Nehemiah, or even Agai, that the people were discouraged even in some of the things going on, particularly in the rebuilding of the temple. But we also know from reading Nehemiah, even after the temple had been rebuilt, that the people were not just discouraged, the people were facing difficult opposition from their enemies, especially in, in Jerusalem. And so as they reflected on this new life, the, 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 the excitement, excitingness of, of, of a return gave way to the harsh reality of life now in Canaan. And as I thought about that, the image that flooded in their mind that summarized how they were feeling at this point of being restored and then getting used to life, the image that came to their mind was the desert land of the Negev. And they quote that in verse 4. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, they are crying out to God. And they are saying, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev, or the Negev, is a southern desert of Israel. In fact, you can look it up on Google Map or whatever you go. Just type in Negev or Negev. Uh, you see this southern desert in Israel. You see, the Bible is not a work of fiction. It is rooted in real geography, real places. This is real history. What we're reading was written thousand, I mean, 2,600 years ago. What we're reading now. And it is factually correct. There is really a negative there. Look it up. Right? And you see it's a desolate land. It's a difficult land. Now, the interesting thing about the Negev is that it has these valleys there, which are generally dry. But they are called wadis, actually. 
Because on rare occasions, during the winter months, it rains in the Negev. And as it rains in rare times, the water forms down as springs. What happens is that the dry Negev can suddenly become full of unexpected streams. And the streams can sometimes flow with such rapid and exciting force. And so when we come to verse 4 and we read, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, <clears throat> like the streams in the Negev. <clears throat> in one way, these streams in the Negev are not ordinary streams. They're not ordinary events, right? They are the unexpected unleashing of God's blessing in an otherwise dry and barren land. So when the people cry to God to restore them like the streams in the Negev, they are confessing publicly that their life, first of all, feels like a desert. They are saying to God, yes, we are truly glad you have restored our life with you. We are happy to finally rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But frankly, oh Lord, we want more of our life with you. We don't just want to exist. We just feel like we are just existing now. We want to thrive with you. We want your spiritual and, of course, material blessings. They are, if you like, longing for the kingdom of God to advance in the world through their lives. They are longing for Vestu to come alive again. For the nations to say, the Lord has done great things for them. They want to be a billboard of God's glory and power. And so when we look at this verse, and we look at this psalm, particularly verse 4, this psalm is first of all teaching us that the first thing God does when he wants to revive his people is that he gives us a longing in our hearts to be revived. And this is posing a huge question to all of us, isn't it? To you as an individual, as somebody in this congregation, in this fellowship. Are you longing for God to revive and renew us as a church with his power and his glory? Are you longing for God to do more through the life of this church? Maybe you're asking, Chola, what does longing look like? What does it feel like to, what does it look like to long for God to do more among us? Well, suppose I asked you this question. Do you long for the lockdown to end? What would be your answer? Do you long for the lockdown to end? I think there are three possible answers you might give us. Answer number one might be no. <laughs> I am super happy with the lockdown. <laughs> It is the best thing that has ever happened to us. Look, we are building back better. And it's a great word to have a word now without any sort of traffic fumes. We're going to tackle climate change. This is the best thing that has happened. I want the lockdown to continue. And there are people who respond like that. So those people are not longing. That's one answer they might give to the lockdown. Or you may say, I want the lockdown to end, yes? But if I'm being honest, Shola, it would not be the end of the world if it didn't. I strongly prefer life without it, don't get me wrong, but it's not a must. So those people are not longing for the lockdown to end, they just have a strong preference for the lockdown to end. Or you might say, like Pius Corbin, 
right? And the others, right? You might say, definitely I want this nightmare to end because my life has got worse because of it. This is why you see me constantly going to central London protesting this thing. I can't cope anymore. It destroyed my mental health. It destroyed, it destroyed my business. I'm not putting a political position. I've given you all the three, right? That, that's, that is longing. I have a passion about the lockdown to end. That's the third answer, isn't it? And that, I want to suggest to you that the third answer is Israel in this psalm. They are saying to God, revive us, O Lord, we, because we feel like a dry ground. We feel like a, like a southern desert. We are craving for your living stream. Revive us now or we die. Do you have this sort of longing for God to revive us like that as a fellowship? For example, do you have a burning desire for this church? You look at the way we, 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 we pray sometimes or, or our lack of commitment to prayer as, as a church. That, does that grieve your heart? Does it say, Lord, come down with power, strengthen us as a church to pray, to be a church that truly believes you answer prayer? When you attend our online Bible study and you see many people in our fellowship missing, does it make you say, oh Lord, revive our love for your living word? When you look at us here, you look around, do you think to yourself, I long for us to do more as a church, to reach out to those people who would never consider even stepping foot in this church. I desperately want to see God save among us people from the LGBT community. I want God to, to, to bring them in so that they can attend this fellowship and, and hear the gospel. I desperately want to see people who are struggling with drug addiction and, and the homeless. Lord, I long to hear them discover the sensation of good news of Jesus. Do you long that in this church, as an example, when we meet together, there will be less pretending that our lives are perfect and, and more openness? Do you have a longing that perhaps will be like one of our, our brothers have said before, like a meeting time? That there will be a community that routinely pours out their tears, not to someone, but before the Lord God himself, that we will carry each other's burdens. Do you have such longings? Do you long for God to revive his church? Not just for us here, but to see this happening across the land in other churches. You see, we must have these longings, you see, because until we as a church can say to the Lord, restore our fortunes, oh Lord, like the streams in the Negev, God won't do it. God won't do it. He can't sovereign do it. But biblically, as I said two weeks ago, the first thing God does before he brings revival he revives his church, he revitalizes his church, or whatever you might want to call it, is that he pours that longing first in his people to cry out to him. 
We see that in throughout the Bible and we see that throughout church history. The children of Israel first longed for things to change while they were in Egypt. And then the Bible says clearly that God heard their cries. He heard their longings and they responded to them. We see it in Judges, isn't it? It is a response to the cries of God's people. People like Gideon, people like Deborah, that God then begins to work to bring at different times in Judges um, that revival. There are exceptions. For example, in the life of Samson, God brings revival without the people wanting him their revival. And of course, it wasn't really a revival as such, really. It was more of a, just a foreshadow of the coming of Christ. We see it in the New Testament. Before God sends the Holy Spirit on the apostles, twice, by the way, the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles twice, even more than that, of course, but I'm talking about the twelve. In both occasions, what precedes it? If you've read Acts very well, the people being gathered, longing, praying before God. In fact, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. Pray, be in Jerusalem. A longing for God's power always precedes the work of God in his church. Now, we cannot make ourselves have these longings. It's so important you understand that. I don't want you to leave this place and say, I'm going to try and long this out. No, we can't do it. It is God the Spirit who creates within us, his children, a deep longing for his bride, the church, to be revived. But that truth only underlines the seriousness of what I'm trying to say here this morning. If it is God the Spirit who does that, and if God the Spirit lives within us, and yet he has not given us, it seems, that longing, that should concern us. Because think about it for a minute. What does God care about most in this world? What is it? If you you can answer this question, what is the number one thing that is on God's agenda? God, of course, never sleeps. He never slumbers, right? But suppose God just woke up one day and said, "This is the first thing I'm," and showed you the list, right? What is on God's top list? If if God make you be privy to the top thing that God cares about in this world, Brexit, the UK, COVID. Me? You? No. The number one thing God cares about is the church. And of course, if you belong to the church, then of course he cares about you, number one, also on his list by association, right? Everything God does in the Bible is about the church. He chose the church before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. He loves the church, Ephesians 1. He died for the church, Ephesians 1, again. Right? He's coming back for the church. The whole Bible, of course. And so we have to ask ourselves, if the church is God's passion, and this same God lives in my heart, by his Holy Spirit, then how is it possible that we do not share his passion? How is it possible that we can belong to God's family and not have a longing passion for God to be powerfully at work 
in his family, the, the, particularly the local family he has placed us in, but also nationally, and of course globally. How is that possible? I think there are only two possible answers. One possible answer is that God has indeed placed this burden in your heart, but sin is getting in the way. Sin is getting in the way. You see, look, if you are currently living a prayerless life, you are not going to long for the person sat, what? Sat, oh, a few rows from you. To pray and grow in prayer. You, you can't long for others. What you don't have. You can wish it, perhaps, but there can't be the sort of longing we're talking about. The past COVID type, I want lockdown to end now type longing. If sharing Jesus to non-believers is not a burning issue on your heart, it is only going to bother you that the church is struggling to evangelize. If you are not at war with sin, against sin, in your life, it is hardly going to bother you that the church may have members that have been absent for over a year. It's hardly going to bother you about that. And of course, if others raise that, you'll be a bit like, it's a small issue, what's going on? So that's one possibility that it is our lives that is the fact that we are struggling in our work with the Lord, of course, reflects the attitude we have with others. That's one possibility. It's sin, you've backslidden. That's the situation. And that's obviously the last two weeks ago sermon. The second possibility is that God has, in fact, not placed this burden on you because he does not know you. Yes, you've sat under many sermons. You perhaps think you made a profession of faith, but it might be possible that you haven't truly been converted. That you are not yet a true regenerate member of his family. That you are not born again yet. And because you're not born again yet, the state of the church doesn't bother you. Now, now, I don't know which of the camps we fall into, or any. There's a third reason why it might be, but those are two fundamental reasons. It could be that somebody just hasn't reminded you that there's this connection and you need to repent and deal with that. And from now on, you have that burning. Or you've sat under the wrong theology, that's also one possibility. But fundamentally, it's still the same thing. It's either sin or you're not regenerating. And I don't know what position you are in as an individual, only you know that. But I do know that what, with all those positions, the answer is the same, the solution is the same. If, if, if you are professed faith and you know that you don't have this longing for God to do his work among his people, then come to him. Cry out to him in repentance. Confess that is a terrible position to be in as a regenerate child of God. Ask God to forgive your sin. Weep before him and ask him to give you this new longing by his Holy Spirit. And seek help from the church. Ways you could grow in deepening this longing. Hold yourself accountable to the congregation of the saints. Jesus is a loving, compassionate Savior. 
He laid down his life for your sins. We'll be reminded of all of that next week again, afresh. Well, today and of course, next week, particularly with Easter coming. He poured out his life for your sins. Of course he loves you. And of course he's ever so willing to see you share his passion. So if you truly repent and turn to him afresh, you do that. You pour that longing in you. And of course, if you know you haven't really come to faith in Jesus, it's the same thing. It's repentance for the forgiveness of sin. God must confess you, make you born again to give you this in-depth longing. Trust in the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. And this very moment, you regenerate you, give you a new life in his kingdom. How we ask this morning, what should we do when we need God to revive his church? Well, the first answer I hope we've seen is that we must long for it. We must long for it. The second thing that we need to do is that we must labor for it. We must labor for it. It's two L's, right? We must labor for it, we must, or we must work for it, or we must toil for it. Same thing. Look at verse 5 to 6 there. After Israel prays to God in verse 4, we actually expect them to say amen. If you're reading this psalm, I struggled with this psalm, like studying it, because it's like the tale of two psalms. I'm just expecting them to end verse 4, perhaps, and stop there. They've, they've realized they've got an issue again. They've prayed. Let's go home, right? But they don't do that. And it's a preacher's problem. What's going on here? They don't do that. What they do is they turn to each other now. And they're now literally talking to one another in verse 5 to 6. They're encouraging. This, the 5 to 6 doesn't feel like a prayer. It, it feels like a self-talk to one another. They're encouraging each other, aren't they? To work for revival. They have just prayed for God to revive them. And now they're encouraging each other, let's pray, let's work for what we just prayed about. Look at verse 5 to 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You see, the picture here uh, is that of a farmer who is toiling the soil in the dry region of the Negev, right? And as he toils this hard soil, he's sowing the seed for that precious harvest. They're trying to rebuild the nation. But he's crying as he's doing it because the ground is very difficult. And he's crying because he also knows that this is not like going in one of the tender regions or one of these amazing regions I read about in geography, somewhere where prelis, you know, where there's a lot of fertile soil and everything. Yeah, teachers who know geography, I'm sure, know all of that stuff. Some place which is fertile, right? It's not like that. This is working in a dry land. And so he knows that this is, at one, humanly speaking, this is hopeless. And it is bringing him tears, isn't it? He knows that it needs really a miracle. Unless a miracle happens, the sun will simply dry it away. And yet he's continuing to sow seeds in tears. Why? Because he's trusting the God of Israel to do the impossible. 
to make those streams in the Negev. And so the point of this verse is very simple, isn't it? It is that God revives His church through the difficult work itself. Not outside the difficult work, but through the difficult work. Revival, beloved, comes through our tears. Before God revives His church, the spiritual ground is very dry. And this is especially true when the spiritual ground has been dry for a very long time. It is painful to work in such a land. And we are prone to be discouraged when things are not going well. We want people to love praying together, don't we? For those of us that are longing for God to work among His people. We want to see people loving the Word of God. We want to see when the word is preached, the people to respond to it, to talk about it, to be energized by the gospel. We want God to serve every person in our life. And parents know this. If you're trusting Him, you're longing for a child to be saved, you share this longing at the home level. You are longing for that, aren't you? And even in the church, we are longing that every child in the church comes to the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We long to see everyone live sacrificially for the gospel, radical for the gospel, taking up the cross and following him, putting Jesus first and his bride. When we have these longings, we have these longings because we love Jesus, don't we? We have this longing because we love him and therefore we love his bride, the church. But you see, the problem is that the risk, there's a risk there. The deeper your longing the greater the risk to be disappointed in the work for God. The more you as an individual love this church, the more risk you are taking on to be disappointed. Why, Why is that? Because you are, we are still toiling in a fallen world. We are toiling in a spiritual ground that is very hard. All work in this world is, is, is under a curse including the work we do for God. So it is hard to serve God. It is hard to live redemptively in the church. It is hard to serve God as a man. It is hard to serve God as as a faithful teacher where God has placed you. If you are living for the Lord there in the workplace, it is hard. And so that work, uh, but, but, but because we long for God to work where God has placed us, in the local church or wherever He's placed us, The risk of discouragement, therefore, is very, very high. We may give up our longings for God to revive and do his work when we see it's not happening as quickly as we like. We may stop shedding tears. We stop serving God with the energy we once had because the results are not coming as quick as we expect. And God knows that. So in this psalm, he's reminding us, keep laboring for me even when it costs you. Because why? Because I do my work best through your tears. I am working through your tears of sacrificing time as you attend Bible study and prayer meetings for me, when there seems very little point because no one else is there. 
I am working through your tears of broken relationships as you stand up for me to professing Christians who are living at ease in Zion. I am working through tears of nights, of sleepless nights on your knees as you pray for your family members to come to know me and it is not happening as quickly as you like. And of course, the tears, of course, are not always physical. I have seen people in this church longing for God to work and this literally brought them tears. I'm not talking about my own tears. I've loads of those. I'm talking literally other people. But the tears aren't always physical. The tears, I think, in this psalm, broadly understood, of course, they are physical in this psalm. But I think spiritually as well, we can say the tears represent, don't they, that deep pain and sacrifice we endure as we work for his kingdom to grow our minds. If you're a child of God and you've earnestly long for God to work in the lives of, in your life, in the life of the church, in the life of your home, you know about these tears. You don't need me to unpack them. And for you, perhaps, most likely, they are literal. But they are most, for many of us, they are tears of, they capture the deep pain and sacrifice we endure as we do work for his kingdom. You see, the point is that when we are truly longing for God to do his work among us, it leads us to embrace pain, sacrifice, and discomfort in our lives. We are taking up the cross and literally following Jesus to Gethsemane and beyond. And it takes a while. It took me a while as a pastor to get this. I honestly thought it's just as simple as you preach. Who was I telling that? <laughs> Brother Ola, I used to tell him a lot. Oh, Brother Rob. I literally think like you literally just preach, people are saved. What are you talking about? The Holy Spirit is there, right? It takes a while for us, isn't it? And of course, some of you are parents know this already. It takes a while to labor in tears because God does his work best through those tears. We need to get this truth as a church because we, our natural self, expects work done for God to be plain selling because after all, as I said, the powerful God is on our side. But this passage is saying to us, God does his work best through our tears. And so if we want the joy of revival, we must surrender our tears to him. That's what verse 6 is saying there. He who goes out weeping, Bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, this verse is encouraging us not to simply fold our hands with bread and be lazy, but to keep laboring on for God, even at great cost to us, because God will bless it. Don't miss his gracious promises. This is a promise. If you have, if you have a collection of promises at home, you, in, the, in the scriptures, you can add this one there. Verse 5 to 6. Those who sow in tears shall do what? Shall reap with shouts of joy. Verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, 
bring his sheaves with him. God is promising us that he will work through our tears, labors of tears. Now, I don't know about you, but I need this encouragement in my life. Because many times I find it difficult to do things that are costly. I am not often willing to go out weeping from financial loss for God. I often want to serve God with financial security. Not at a loss to me. I do not always want to go out weeping from rejection by my neighbors because I'm telling them the truth they don't want to hear. I don't want that. I want to be liked just like everybody else. I fear the tears of knocking on doors without success. I don't always want the tears of ending good friendships are built in the church because I tell somebody that, sorry, you're not living right and you need to get right with God. I don't relish that. I want to avoid that. That, that that's me. I don't want the tears of ending friendship that not move me closer to Jesus. That's the natural me. And so I am thankful to Jesus. I'm thankful to God for the encouragement of this psalm that God wants my tears. And it is through those tears that because it is through those tears that he has chosen as a vehicle for reviving my life the lives of those I love, and of course, fundamentally, the church. I know it's counterintuitive to what the word is telling us, isn't it? But that's what the scripture is telling us. And most importantly, it is by truly surrendering ourselves to him that true joy comes in our lives. We are all searching for joy, aren't we? But here is the thing that the scripture says. The route to joy runs through tears. Don't miss that in verse 5 to 6. Those who sow in tears shall do what? Reap with shouts of what? Of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall do what? Shall come home with what? With shouts of joy. Bringing his sheaves as a fruit of the work with him. The point then, beloved, is that is as God reinvigorates us by his power, and as we submit to him in tears, the joy comes. True joy comes to those who are willing to selflessly offer themselves up to God. Those who go out, don't miss that. For you to experience the joy, you have to go out. Those who go out doing the hard work of serving God at all costs. And this is the encouragement, isn't it? As I said, it's an encouragement just for the work in the church. And then it's an encouragement for anything that you are doing in your life for God. Anywhere God has placed you to serve faithfully. This is an encouragement for stay-at-home moms. It's an encouragement for those who are doing ritual work and seeking to be faithful to God in that. But putting God first in that work. It's an encouragement for those that are volunteering in different areas of your life for God. It's an encouragement to teachers, uh, parents, grandparents, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, who are seeking to live in a redemptive way at great cost to themselves. 
Because you're doing it for the glory of God and His kingdom. This promise is for you. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home in due time with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We know it's true eternally, but I think this promise, of course, is true in the temporal as well. So is your work bringing you tears? Then be reminded of this gracious promise of this son. God is at work through your tears for his glory and your joy. And we know this is true, don't we? Because as we read about the labor of tears here, we can't help but remember the wonderful tears of that first Easter. Oh, beloved, are we not here today because our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, shed tears in Gethsemane on his way to the cross to die for us? Isn't that what we read in Hebrews at the beginning? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and what? And tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of what? His reverence. And I think that means his perseverance in the middle of tears. Although he was a son, beloved, although he was the eternal son of God, not just any other son, this son, although he was very God or very God, he learned obedience through what he suffered, through his tears. And when we jump across the little chapters of Hebrews, we see that those tears of Jesus were for the joy ahead of him. Because in chapter 12, verse 2 to 3 in Hebrews, we read this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the rest that is said before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who what? For the joy that was set before him, did what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Look, beloved, the life of Jesus forms the pattern for his followers. Is the real thing we are supposed to be the shadow that followed. First, we saw tears for his church, and then we see the joy of seeing God revive his people. Do you long for God to revive his church? Not only us here, but within this land. Are you earnestly praying for God to renew his people afresh? When then this psalm is saying to you, do not stop there, beloved. Commit yourself to this local fellowship. Do not simply be content to be a Christian in name only. Do not even be content just to be a baptized believer. Oh, what a pitiful thing just to aim at. Do not even be content just to be a church member. Oh, beloved, your aim must be higher than that. You must aim to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To serve in such a way that one day you'll see the Lord of glory and you'll be able to say to him, I labored for your church in tears. Him for that. And as we long and labor for the Lord in this way, well, we are promised in this psalm that God will do his work to revive his church, not only here, but the Lord may be pleased to revive the church in this land as a whole. For his glory... And for our joy. Well, may the Lord revive and restore his church like those streams in the Negev. And may he be pleased to work in our tears for his glory and our joy. Amen.